<laughs> Good. Praise the Lord. If you have a Bible with you tonight, you can open it to the book of 1 Samuel. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand and make eye contact with the ushers, and they will drop a Bible off to you so you can follow along um, in our study tonight as we fly over these chapters. And while you're turning in there, I have a few announcements for you. Um, First of all, we have right now, as we speak, 10 people uh, from our congregation in Israel touring uh, the land. So... Um, As you think of it, as you pray, or as you sign off at night before the Lord, just uh, maybe lift them before the Lord, ask for their safety. They are uh, there, and they're secure, but you could just continue to pray for them. Also, the the lunchbox outreach, uh, the next opportunity to serve is tomorrow. That's March 6th from 4 uh, p.m. to 6.30 p.m. at the lunchbox in Poughkeepsie. Um, And there's room for you to serve there, so there's a sign-up on the back table. Um, The ladies' fellowship breakfast is this Saturday. Saturday. That's at uh, 9.30 a.m. in the solid ground. Food, fun, fellowship, bring a dish to share. There, again, there's a sign-up on the back table. That's at 9.30 again. Um, also, uh, the, the children's ministry is sponsoring the Pine Car Derby. That's going to be Saturday, uh, March 22nd from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. right here in the youth room. And all children are welcome to participate. Uh, there will be food available. Um, and all proceeds from it will go to the Hades Missions team. And so to purchase a car kit or for more information, you can see the children's ministry table or talk to uh, the, the, the Pioneer Club people out there tonight. Um, and that's it. Uh, one more quick announcement, because I'm probably going to forget to say this later. Um, but because of the nature of this flyover in First Samuel, your assignment, yes, your assignment, it's to read the next eight chapters of First Samuel. So uh, that will be chapters 8 through 15. So if you read ahead, then you'll be right there with us because we're not going to read every verse as we go through those chapters, but we are going to highlight them, and it will help you greatly uh, if you take the time to go through and uh, read those. So with that, we are in First Samuel. Let us again go to the Lord, ask him to speak to us and bless our, our study tonight. Father, once again, we take this pause in this time because we know that we're not approaching a piece of literature to study or a piece of art or poetry, but we're studying the word of the God of heaven. And we know, Lord, that your word is able to accomplish what you sent it to do. You said that it was sharp and able to pierce and divide and to penetrate and work in our hearts and lives. And so we ask, Lord, that as you have foreseen this night from Before the world even was, you know what you want to do in each one of our lives. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would make us sensitive, that you would make us to have ears to hear, and that you would make us willing to respond to all that you'll speak and show to us tonight. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would have free course in this place, that you would remove every distraction, every idle thought, and that you would help us to hear what you want to say to us tonight. And so we ask you to bless your word and fill our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About 350 years ago, a shipload of travelers landed on the northeast coast of America. In the first year that they were there, they cleared a town site. In the second year, they created a town government. In the third year, they planned to build a road five miles west into the wilderness. And in the fourth year, the people tried to impeach the town government for wanting to build a road five miles to nowhere. Now the amazing thing is, is that those very people that had enough vision to travel 3,000 miles across an ocean to find a new world, just a few years in, didn't have enough vision to carve a road five miles into the wilderness to see what else might be out there. They went out to find a new world but they were very soon content to be confined into a very small village. They lost their pioneer spirit. Now, God's plan, when he formed the nation of Israel, that's the subject that we're studying as we go through this history of the Old Testament. They had roots that were very small, but in God's mind, they also had a destination, somewhere that he was taking them. And that requires development. Now, the book of Samuel, for you and I, represents a period of transition for the people of God. Transition is necessary if there's going to be development, and we see that's what God's doing in their lives. 
He's taking them from the period of what would be known as the judges, that period that we're finishing, and he's bringing them into this period of the monarchs or of the kings. Now, transition involves, of course, change. And as you know, change isn't something that comes easy almost for anyone, and certainly that's true also for the people of God. Now, concerning God and his relationship with man, there are some things that change constantly, and there are some things that never change and never should. The things that change for the people of God from generation to generation are things like culture, style, means of structure, organization, the way that we express ourselves, communications, technology, all of those things, they constantly evolve, they constantly are changing, and they should. But then there's things that shouldn't change, that never can change. They are, of course, who God is. The fallen nature of man. The word of God, what he says and what he's revealed, that doesn't change. It stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. And of course, the gospel, the message of salvation, it doesn't change. It is a steady constant. Now, the things that don't change never will and never can. But the things that can change always must. So why is change necessary as it relates to God and his relationship with people? A couple of reasons to just consider at the onset here. First of all, God is always interested in relationship with man, not in religion. So here's what happens. God will pour out his spirit and he'll meet with a particular generation in a supernatural way. He'll reveal himself and there'll be a relationship between God and his people that's supernatural and real. And there'll be a form of expression. There will be a culture that God will get a hold of. And they will express themselves. They will worship in a particular fashion. And that move of God will look like something on a man-to-man level, eye-to-eye, what is visual. But over time, that generation will get old. And the initial move of God will begin to wane a little bit. And those that are on the back side of that move of God won't know the initial move of God and how he grabbed the heart, but they'll see the outward expression of it, and they'll cling to those outward things, culture, expression, music style, all of that, dress, and and they'll make that the foundation of their relationship with God. And what happens is relationship turns into religion. And so it necessitates that God pour out his spirit again on the successive generations. Psalm chapter 145, verse 4, says that one generation shall declare your works to the next and show forth your marvelous work. And that's the way it is. A generation declares God's work, how he works, to the next, but then it's up to God to move upon that generation and meet them where they are. And so God doesn't change, his word doesn't change, but a generation changed, and so there are some things that obviously will. Another reason why change is necessary or transition when it comes to the things of God and his relationship with man is that anything that man touches ultimately becomes corrupted and decayed. God will hand off a pure work to a generation, a sincere revival, but over time it becomes tarnished and corrupted by man and it slowly dies off. I don't know if you saw, I saw an article today uh, that was talking about how the Pope made a a provision for a priest in Lebanon to be married. And so it stirs up, obviously, some controversy because that is uh, not allowed in Catholic uh, theology. A priest must remain celibate, you know. But as I was reading the article, it was the first time I ever knew why that rule existed. Certainly it isn't found in the Bible, that someone in that position has to remain celibate. But the reason was because up to leading up to the Middle Ages, nepotism was a real problem. If a priest had a family, he would keep the ministry in that family and he would pass off the positions, the ruling, ruling of the church to those within his own household, irregardless of the call of God, perhaps if it was there or if it wasn't. And so they instituted a law, a decree, that if you want to be a priest, then you must make a vow of celibacy. The reason for it was to curb the corruption that was caused by the nepotism. The problem is that rule instituted a whole new set of problems into the church, things that we are dealing with today. But can you see how a move of God, something perhaps that God is in, becomes corrupted and then over time 
It just dies off. And it's so far from what God ever intended it to be. And so God must move upon a new generation. And that's exactly where we are at this point in Israel's history. For 400 years, God has been relating to the nation through the judges, the Shepatim, if you remember, the rulers, the heroes that he came upon and that served his people. But the generation successively grew further and further from God. They were distant. And so now God is going to bring a time of transition. And thus we are in the book of Samuel. Now, as far as the background concerning the book, I told you last week that there's going to be a flyover. So let me give you some pre-flight information. If you'll notice in the overhead compartment, no. But the book of Samuel in the ancient Hebrew script did not exist. It was there, the text was there, but it wasn't called Samuel. There was one book that included 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings. And it was simply known as the Kings. And it was all one volume. But then a little bit later on, the Septuagint, which was the, Latin, or the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, they divided the book into four segments, all called Kings. So there was 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Kings that made up these four books that we have in front of us right now. And then a little bit later on, the Latin Vulgate and then the English scriptures, they divided it further and called the first two, 1st and 2nd Samuel, and then the last two, 1st and 2nd Kings. And so there's a little history on, uh, on that for you if you want it. Now, though it bears his name, Samuel was most likely not the author. In fact, we almost know that for sure, because Samuel dies by the time we get to chapter 25 of 1st Samuel. And so therefore, if he wrote... The volumes of Samuel, then he did it miraculously, knowing what would yet be in the future. It's called Samuel because the book begins with the story of how he came on the scene. And he's the one that God used to usher in this period of the monarchs. He organized the kingdom, if you would, and thus these books, First and Second Samuel, bear his name. Now, Samuel, the man, was technically not a king. He was a judge. He was the last of the judges from that period of the judges. He also is called a prophet. And more than that, he's called a teaching prophet. And that, there's a distinction there. You see that term come up from time to time throughout the Old Testament, a teaching prophet. And there was a particular value to someone that held that ministry. There was a stability that would exist amongst the people of God when there was a teaching prophet in Israel because the people would be informed and, and, and given the understanding of who God was, and it would serve to strengthen the relationship with him. So he was a judge, he was a prophet, but he was also a priest. And that makes him one of the very few and very select people and, and leaders that we see throughout the Old Testament that occupied leadership roles in three different arenas. The fact that he was a judge made him a leader politically. The fact that he was a prophet made him a leader spiritually, influencing the spiritual direction of the nation and of the people. And the fact that he was a priest established his role as a mediator, and that was something that was specifically designated for the priests. And that's very rare. A little bit uh, back in the history, it was illegal, actually. A Levite could not be a king. You could not serve as a priest and also be in a political place. But there were a handful of people that did. Samuel does because he wasn't a king. But he's a unique and special individual. And though he doesn't get the press, perhaps, of a Moses or a David, he certainly is amongst the elite spiritual men that we see within uh, the Bible. Now, the time frame that these books span as we fly over them, from here, this beginning part of 1 Samuel all the way to the end of 2 Chronicles. So the next six books, if you would, that highlight the entire history of the kings, it spans a time of about 450 years. So just a little bit longer than the time span that was in the book of Judges. Remember Judges? You know, 21 chapters, but yet there was about 400 years of history. Now, six whole books that highlight the same amount of time, this period of the kings, there's a whole lot more detail that's given to us here. Now, there's a very simple outline as we go through these books to follow and kind of know where we are. The first seven chapters, the segment that we'll look at tonight, highlights the ministry of Samuel. 
So it tells us how he came on the scene, how God raised him up, and then what he did for the nation. That's all in 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 7. Then the next eight chapters that we'll look at next week highlight the failed ministry or failed monarchy of the first king. That was King Saul. And so those eight chapters talk about how God raised him up and then how he fell hard. And then the final 16 chapters, the last segment of uh, Samuel that will split into two studies, highlight the ascension of King David. So that is how David then came on the scene. He doesn't become king technically until we get into 2 Samuel, but these chapters explain how he got there. And it's a great study for you and for me as we seek to have God raise us up into that place that he's designed us simply for. And then 2 Samuel is all about the reign of King David. The whole book highlights the reign uh, of David. So it's not a large amount of time. There's just more detail than the judges um, that are given. And so tonight we look at the first seven chapters, the life and ministry of Samuel. Now, as I already stated, God is bringing his people into a time of transition from the rule of the judges to the rule of the kings. And God is going to raise up Samuel as the human instrument that he will use then to institute that change. Now, in order for change or transition to take place, especially on this level, that is that we're changing the course of a nation, there are three things that have to happen. Number one is that the current status quo or the current order of things has to come to an end. There has to be a breaking point between what was and what will be. The second thing is that the spiritual attitude of the people must be prepared to embrace the coming change. It's not easy for us to embrace when things are different than what we're used to. And so it takes a work of God to prepare the people of God for what he's going to do next. And the number three then is the ushering in of that transition. And so all three of those things are necessary as God is going to move his nation to a new level. And what we discover is that it isn't Samuel himself that's doing these things, but rather it's God working through Samuel to bring his nation to the place where they are destined to ultimately go. God is going to institute transition by raising up a special man, Samuel. And in order to accomplish that, he's going to need special parents. So make sure your seatbelts are fastened. Make sure your luggage is securely fastened in your overhead compartment. And your electrical devices are turned off because we're about to take off as we fly over the first seven chapters here of 1 Samuel. Chapter 1 highlights for us the preparation and the birth of Samuel, especially giving us a, a detailed account of Samuel's parents and especially his mother, Hannah. The narrative begins with a man named Elkanah. And he had a, two wives. He was a polygamist. The name of his one wife was Penina, and the name of the other was Hannah. And Penina, the one wife, was extremely fruitful. She was a human Pez machine. She popped out babies left, right, and center all over the place. But the Bible tells us that Hannah, his other wife, was barren. Now, to complicate things, she, Hannah, the barren one, was the favored wife amongst the two. And that's the answer for those of you that are wondering, hey, this polygamy thing, what's the deal? Hey, it happened. God didn't condone it, but it never came without problems. God said it's to be a man and his wife singular. He's not saying it's okay. He's saying that it happened, and we always see the problems associated with it. And so Elkanah, his two wives, Penina and Hannah, Hannah was barren. But year by year, we're told that they would make their way to the tabernacle that was in Shiloh to worship, as was commanded by the law of Moses. And when they would go and they would offer, there would be an abundance of meat that would be given to them. It would be their offering, but then it would be given back to them to enjoy and fellowship with the Lord. And Elkanah would always give provisions to his two wives, but to Hannah, he would give a double portion because she was favored. So Penina, the one wife, would torment Hannah because she had no children. And at the same time, she would feel extremely jealous because of the favor that was shown to her by Elkanah. And so Penina would torment Hannah and say, you're barren. You've got no children. You've got nothing to give your husband. And she bore that great reproach. And it was a great reproach in those days to not have children. 
And it tells us that Hannah's heart was bitter because of the condition that she was in. Barren, she felt abandoned by God. She felt as though she couldn't give to her husband, nor did she have anything to dedicate to the Lord. So she went to the temple on one occasion while they were in Shiloh. It says that she was weeping. And she poured out her heart to the Lord, finding no sympathy from her husband, Alkanah. And as she was there, mouthing the words of her complaint, but not even finding the strength to make sound to back up those words, she was seen by Eli, who was the high priest at that time. And so Eli came to Hannah and he said, Woman, put away your wine. Why are you drunk in the presence of the Lord? Because that's what she looked like. And she, in a moment of vulnerability, confessed to him and she said, No, my Lord, your handmaid is not drunk and don't count me to be that way, but I'm of a sorrowful spirit. And I've poured out my complaint to the Lord, asking him for a child. And Eli apologizes and then he prays for her and he says, The Lord grant you your request. But in that prayer that Hannah prayed, she made a vow. She said, Lord, if you give me a man-child, I will dedicate him to you all the days of his life. I will give him into your service completely, and he will be a Nazarite, just like Samson was. No razor will come upon his head. And so she makes that vow. Elkanah prays for her, says, you will have your son. And sure enough, she goes home after worshiping, by the way, and going away peacefully. And she returns home. She conceives, and she gives birth to a son in the course of time. Rejoicing, of course. But then she says, I'm not going to bring the child and present him to the Lord until after he is weaned. And then the chapter closes. So Samuel is then weaned. He is brought to the temple as a young child and he is left there. She actually leaves him in the tabernacle to be raised by Eli in the institute there that he might be totally, literally dedicated to the things of God. And then the first verses of chapter 2 are the prayer of thanksgiving that Hannah offers to the Lord um, because of it. And in it, she declares that God is good, that God is sovereign, that God does as he pleases and that he doesn't need our help. And then uh, she, 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 she expresses that she understands the framework of the dynamics of what God is doing through her and Samuel and what he's going to do for the nation. So it's a prophetic prayer. Now here's what happened in this chapter, is that God used what was important to her to draw her closer to him while including her in his plan for them, that is the nation. So here's the lesson of chapter 1 and the message that God wants to convey to you and I. Is that it is important that there be harmony between God's will and man's desire. The importance of harmony between God's will and man's desire. Now I don't know why... But it's important to God that he do his work on earth through men. It would be a lot easier and it would make a lot more sense if God would just do it himself. He'd be a whole lot more effective. He could just speak things into be and they would be. But God doesn't choose to do it that way. He wants to use us to accomplish and to serve his purposes. Now the biggest obstacle that God has in choosing to do things that way is bringing our desires into harmony with his plan for our lives. The desires that we have aren't rogue desires that we just have flippantly or haphazardly. But when you become a child of God, the Bible says that he puts the desires in your heart that you have. But then he has to bring those desires into harmony with his will if you're going to see his plan worked out through those desires. See, he desires to bless you, but he also has a plan and something that he wants to do. And so he works in us to bring those desires into harmony with his will and his plan for us and for his world that he wants to touch through our lives. Now, unfortunately, the most effective tool that God has to bring those desires into harmony with his will is pain. I'll call it pressure. You know, that's what they say at the doctor's office when it's going to hurt. You know, you're going to feel pressure. You know. And so God puts on some pressure. In this case, it was Penina tormenting Hannah because of her barrenness. It was the lack of sympathy that she received from Elkanah, and it was the bitterness of soul that her condition left her in. But that's what brought her into a place where she was in harmony with God's will. See, she wanted a son. God wanted a prophet. And so when Hannah came into a place where she was willing to dedicate her son to the Lord's service, to raise him in the things of God, It was then that God said, now you're in line with my will and you're going to see what I am ultimately going to do. And here's what she received. 
she received, first of all, the presence of God. She was driven close to him. She was totally given to his purpose. She had immediate peace. She went out satisfied. She had the ability to worship and bend the knee. She obtained what she asked for, and God gave her five more children after it, three sons and two more daughters. Now, one more thing on this before we move forward, but I love this, is that God always answers the why question. You say, why does God have to bring us into harmony with his purposes for us? Why can't he just do what he's going to do, irregardless of whether or not we're in harmony with it or not? The answer is this, is that for Hannah to be effective in what God had for her, there had to be heart harmony and not just head harmony. In other words, see, at the very moment that God was doing this work in Samuel, 20 miles to the west, there was another woman who was barren at the same exact time. And she was visited by an angel. There was head harmony that was being imparted. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a Nazarite. And he will begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. It was the exact same time that Samuel was being given to Hannah, that Samson was being birthed in the womb of another barren woman that was married to a man named Manoah. But the difference was this. There was no struggle for the wife of Manoah, the mother of Samson. She was just told, this is what you're going to do. This is God's plan. You're to raise him up a certain way, and he's going to deliver Israel. There was head harmony. She knew the plan, but there was no heart harmony. She wasn't brought into conformity with God's will. And therefore, what happened? She raised Samson in the things of God, but she didn't take it seriously. When Samson began to screw off and do the things he wasn't supposed to, rather than reproving, correcting, and instilling in him the vision for his life, they looked the other way. And they let things happen. They let him get involved with the Philistines, and we know what happened to Samson. That's not going to happen to Samuel. Why? Because Hannah's so committed to what God is doing because of what she's felt and what God's done, that she's going to leave Samuel in a place where she is sure and absolute that God will have his way within her life. Now, that's the way God works with us. There has to be heart harmony with his will. Sometimes I wish God would just write his will for me on the wall. That he would just hand me a note or send it in the mail or give me an email. And he would just write out, this is what I want you to do, Nick. This is my plan and this is what the next five years is going to look like. That would be so easy, wouldn't it? The problem is we'd screw it up. But God's way is so much better. It's so much higher than our way because he puts the pressure within our heart. He uses our pain, our struggles, our waiting, our patient obtaining and seeking of him to conform our heart into the knowledge of his will. And so therefore, when the plan begins to unfold, we're in harmony and in step with him. And we see those plans not fall by the wayside, but we see them come to fruition. So the chapter teaches us the importance of being in heart harmony with the will of God as it relates to our desires. I don't know what you're going through tonight or what you're facing, but understand this. Is that the pressure you're feeling or the patience that you're needing is serving the purpose of bringing you into perfect line with God's will for your life. And just hold on because he's able to bring it to bear. Now the remainder of chapter 2 after uh, uh, um, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving, her prophetic prayer, it gives to us the spiritual climate amongst the leadership in the priesthood in Israel in those days. We see that there was deep and rotten corruption as we look at the two sons of Eli, these two men named Hophni and Phinehas. It tells us in the text that the custom was that when people would come to Israel to offer their sacrifices to the Lord that they would give their offering and then the meat would be given back to the worshiper who would then go and cook the meat, eat it there in the presence of the Lord, and it was a symbolic gesture that they were having intimate fellowship with God. They were sharing a meal with God. But the custom for the priests and how they would be supplied for is that they would take a flesh hook, a three-pronged fork, and they would go around to the various camps, and while the meat was boiling, they would thrust the flesh hook into the pot of boiling meat. And they would pull out whatever stuck to the fork, and that would be their legal portion. It was how God ordained that they should be fed. But these men weren't satisfied with that. They wanted the choice cuts of the meat, not just whatever came out with the fork. And they wanted the meat with the fat on it, which thing was illegal. It was unlawful for them to consume the fat, but that's what they wanted to do. And so what they did is they sent out their associates to go to the people before the the meat was boiled, 
and to not take what would come out with the hook, but to take the best portions, whatever they wanted, with the fat. And if any of the people would protest and say, no, but at least let the fat be cooked off first, then they would be said, look, you can either take this, give it to us quietly, or we're going to take it by force. The Bible says that their corruption went even deeper, so that they were involved in sexually seducing the women that were coming to the temple to worship. And so we see they were abusing the offerings, using it to enrich themselves. They were bullying the people into giving in ways that were contrary to the law and treating them roughly. We see that they were seducing and sleeping with the woman that would come to worship God. And the result of it, we're told, is that people despised coming to serve and worship God. That's a sad commentary. Can you imagine something like that happening today? I can't imagine a spiritual atmosphere where pastors and church leaders use church funds and offerings to enrich themselves. Where people in leadership cause people to give and compel them to give in ways that are beyond what God has asked people to give. Where pastors and church leaders would seduce and use women, vulnerable women in the church, to gratify their own sexual desires and lusts. I can't imagine anything like that ever happening in the world today. Certainly you know I'm being sarcastic. We read about it every day. There's nothing new under the sun. It speaks to a condition of corruption within the ranks of ministry. So God sends a prophet to speak to Eli, the father of these two boys. And that prophet says to Eli that God has three problems with you. And he addresses three attitudes that led to the level of corruption and the behaviors that we just talked about. The first indictment that the prophet brings is that Eli disrespected the privilege associated with wearing the ephod and burning the incense. He says, you don't, you've taken for granted what this means and the privilege that's associated with being in this service. You've forgotten that ministry is a calling, not a career, and that it's a privilege, not a prize. You don't do this because you earned it. You do this because you get to do this, and you've lost sight of the privileged part you get to play in performing my services. The second indictment is, he said, you're using ministry to enrich yourself. It's my money that I've commanded people to give for my work. And, and here's the problem. Your attitude is that the ministry has become all about you. It exists because of you in your own mind. And so now, therefore, it all exists for you. And thus, you have the right to do, you think, whatever you want. And then number three uh, is the third thing. He says, you honor your sons more than you honor me. And the reason he says that is because you know what they're doing is wrong. And even though you say to them that what they're doing is wrong, you do nothing to restrain them or to stop them or reign in their behavior. And thus you are honoring sinners by looking the other way. And thus you're dishonoring me uh, with your silence. And here's what happens when this is the attitude amongst those that are in ministry is that they abuse the offering and use it for themselves. They manipulate people and cause them to give beyond what God asks and they'll seduce people into fulfilling their pleasure and their lust, whatever that might be. And so the prophet says to Eli, these are the consequences that will come upon you. Number one is that you and your sons are going to be removed. I'm not going to stand by, God says, and let people hate coming to me because of the gross misrepresentation that you're bringing them. Number two, your descendants and your family will be removed even down into future generations and reduced to poverty. And then he says, and this is the sign that it will come to pass, is that both of your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will both die in the same day. Now, it's going to be 20 years before that happens. Amazing, right? The judgment of God, the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. He says, this will be the sign that it's going to happen. So what's the lesson of chapter 2 for you and I? The lesson is in verse 30 of chapter 2. And God says this, he says, them that honor me, I will honor but them that despise me will be lightly esteemed. Now, although the indictment in this chapter is given to the ministers, the truth of it applies to all of God's people in every generation. It's possible for us to honor people more than we honor God and to lightly honor him with what we do. When we forget that where we came from and what we are, when we forget that we're sinners, that we're saved by grace, that we deserve absolutely nothing from God at all. And we begin to think that, that our salvation or God's blessing in our lives has something to do with us. We despise his grace. Because the Bible says that the flesh profits nothing. The Bible says that we are absolutely 
completely separated from God in our very nature and that our most righteous acts are like filthy rags before God. We get, we deserve nothing from God. But when we begin to think that we are something before God, special or better, we're despising His grace. It also manifests when, when our lives become all about us. We think that our gifts, our talents, our resources, the opportunities that we have, the goodness that God's bestowed, we begin to think that that's because, oh, hey, I'm so gifted, or I'm so wise, or I'm so smart, or I made good investments. And we start to think it's all about us. Everything exists for us, and it comes out in our attitude. We're not honoring God when we have that attitude. And then finally, when we order our lives according to what's convenient rather than what's correct. God was displeased in Eli because he didn't take time to train and raise up his sons. They were doing what was wrong, but he didn't want to correct them. It was inconvenient. It was easier to look the other way, say something quickly, but to actually invest what it would take was too much effort for Eli to expend, and he wasn't willing to do it. He didn't restrain them, and thus uh, the disaster that came uh, because of it, you know, and, and, and that, that, that speaks to every one of us is that there are times in our life when what's convenient takes priority for us over what's right. And God says, when you do that, you're not honoring me. You're esteeming men or esteeming yourself or esteeming something else, but you're not honoring what I have told you to do. And so that was the spiritual condition of the leadership we see there in chapter two. As we get to chapter three, we come to God's call upon Samuel's life. Now, we saw his birth and his dedication at the hand of his mother, Hannah. But now we come to three things that highlight for us Samuel's call, his raising in the ranks. Number one is his call, God calling him. Then number two is a test. And then number three is his growth. It begins with his call. It's a famous passage of scripture. If you read it, you read it. If you didn't read it, I'm sure you've heard it before. Samuel, a young man, is laying there in the temple at night and he hears a voice. God speaks. He says, Samuel. Samuel arises, he thinks it's Eli, and so he rushes to the place where Eli is, and he says, what is it? And Eli says, it wasn't me, go back to bed. And three times that happens, Samuel, and he comes back to Eli again, what is it? Eli says, look, it wasn't me. But after the third time, Eli realizes, hey, this is God. He said, Samuel, if you hear that voice again, just say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. It's God. It's the Lord. He's speaking to you. And so Samuel goes back and it says that the Lord called to him again. And he said, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And then God goes on to speak to Samuel. And he says, I'm going to do a thing in Israel in your days that upon hearing it, both ears of everyone that hears is going to tingle. And Eli is going to be removed from his place. And I'm going to raise up someone who's faithful, who's going to be faithful to me. And so Samuel hears God's voice. Now, this is a great illustration for you and me. I remember as a young Christian, I was uh, scanning the tape library in my local church, and I couldn't get enough of the word. As many tapes or messages or books I could get my hands on, I wanted to read. And I remember one day scanning the titles of the tapes, and there was a tape called Hearing God's Voice. And I said, oh, that's what I need. I want to hear God's voice. And so I took the tape, and I thought, here it is. I'm going to get the formula, and after I hear this tape, I'm just going to be able to be right in tune. I'm going to hear God speak to me so clearly. Man, was I disappointed. What a waste. False advertising. You know, I I, I listened to the whole thing. I dedicated the time. You know, I probably even paid the fee to rent the tape. And I didn't get what I was coming for. But this tells us something. It tells us that learning to hear God's voice isn't something that you learn in one try. Or at one moment. There's a process. There's something more to it. Now, with Samuel, the illustration is a lot more literal than it is for you and me. We get the idea that he heard a literal voice. He was able to mistake it with Eli himself. God sounded a whole lot like Eli. Now, I've never heard an audible voice, but I know I have heard the voice of God. So how do we learn to hear God's voice? How does this take place for you and me as we seek to be in communion with him and led by him and used of him? I believe that the best answer we can give in short time would come from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Number one is you give yourself, dedicate yourself totally to the Lord. That's what Samuel was, and that's what we're to do. We're to dedicate ourselves. Then number two, he says in verse two, he says, and be not conformed to this world. That's number two, is don't be conformed to this world. Detach from the things of this world, but rather 
um, what is it? Do not be conformed to this world, but by the renewing of your mind, let your mind be renewed that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so three things for you and I to help us to learn and develop in hearing God's voice. Number one is dedicate. Number two is detach from this world. And number three is dig in. The way that you have your mind renewed is by immersing yourselves in the truths of God. And as you allow the word of God to go through you and to rewrite who you are and and, and be written in your very heart, it makes it easy to discern what the spirit is speaking to you in your heart and in your soul. Dedicate, detach, dig in, and then you learn through proving so that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hey, you make mistakes. You'll say, I think I'm hearing from the Lord on this. And you'll step out in response. And you're either going to find, ooh, I really missed it. I, I, just, I guess I just wasn't hearing from God in that. And you'll learn from that. And that's okay. Or you'll get it right. And you'll say, man, that was awesome. I felt like God was speaking. He confirmed it through his word. It made sense. I stepped out and God met me in it. And you, you've, you've learned now to hear his voice. And there's a growth. There's something that happens. And so God desires that for every one of us. Well, it followed for Samuel by a test. See, he's been given a message now that isn't real easy to give. He's got to go tell Eli that he's going to be toast and that God's done with him and he's going to raise up someone else. He's got a message to give, but will he give it? And that's always the test. And so he's sent back and Eli comes to him in the morning and Eli says, tell me, Samuel, what have you heard from the Lord? And so Samuel says, and he's faithful, and he declares to Eli everything that God said. Rather than getting angry or telling Samuel that he was a fool, Eli concedes, and he says, it is the Lord. Whatever the Lord's will is, let it be done. It's absolutely right. And so Samuel passes the test, and then number three, the last part of the chapter, we we read of Samuel's growth. We're told that God raised him up, and we're told that God backed him up. Look at verse 19 in chapter 3, because it's one of my favorite verses in Samuel's life. It's a thing I pray for myself. You could pray for me too if you want. He says in verse 19, it says, So Samuel grew, and it says, And the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, listen, in the original language, it's almost impossible to determine which way that statement goes. In other words, was it Samuel not letting God's words fall to the ground? Or was it God not letting Samuel's words fall to the ground? Which one is it? And when you read the language, you kind of go, wait, uh, wait, well, which one is it? I think there's a little bit of both. I think that Samuel was so serious about doing what God wanted and and heeding his word and knowing who he was that Samuel didn't cast any of God's word to the wayside. He didn't say, well, I'll choose to believe that, but I don't want to believe this. I'll choose to obey this, but I don't want to obey that. I I like Matthew through Revelation, Genesis through Malachi, not so much. He didn't do that. He said, whatever God said, I want that to be who I am. He didn't let any of God's words fall to the ground. Now, on the other side of it, then, God didn't let any of Samuel's words fall to the ground. He was a prophet. And so, therefore, if Samuel spoke by the word of the Lord, or if he spoke out in faith, then God honored what Samuel said and didn't let it fall to the ground either. And thus, the result of it is that Samuel grew in favor with God and men, and it was established from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the far south that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. God gave him reputation, God gave him character and strength. And then it closes the chapter that God was revealed through his word to Samuel. Here's the lesson uh, of chapter 3 for you and I. is that if a person is committed to God completely, If your life is dedicated to God, then you will fully thrive in any environment that you're in. God is not restricted by anything. Consider the environment that Samuel was in when he was raised up. It was the pit of corruption. People hated coming to church because of how corrupt the priesthood was. Hophni and Phinehas were sleeping around with women and it was a seabed of corruption. But yet God was able to raise up a faithful man who would become a pillar in Israel and a lamp for them in the midst of that environment because he was dedicated to God. And that's a great encouragement for you and I. Because the darker days get and the more messed up the church is, you might think, man, if I ever leave this church, where would I go? Get it? Like I was insinuating that we're perfect. You know, we're pretty close, you know, but... (laughs) But 
here's the point is that if you're dedicated to God, God is able to do in your life what he needs to do in your life. He'll bring you into full completion and full maturity. He will protect and preserve you regardless of, of your setting, your circumstances, uh, and, and your situation. If you're completely... You know, I, I give credit to Elkanah and Hannah in this. Is that they were willing by faith to take their children to a church that was pretty messed up and leave them there. Because they trusted in God. And that was true for Samuel. There's also some direction in this for us concerning our discovering of our place within God's plan. There's a lesson, there's a principle. First of all, concerning your gift and what God's called you to do. Number one, find it. Then number two, feed it. I'm sorry, use it. And then number three, feed it. That's what Samuel does. He discovers what his gift is. He's a prophet. He learns how to hear God's voice. Then he begins to use it. He expresses it to Eli. And then he feeds it. He continually lets the word of God shape who he is that he might grow in it. And that's true for, for you. Find out what God's made you to do. What did God make you for? What is your spiritual gift? Has he given you discernment or wisdom? The ability to counsel practically? Has he given you understanding of how the world works, how things work? Has he given you the gift of evangelism or the power of persuasion or a gift of compassion? What is it that God has given you? Discover what that gift is. Know what it is. Then use it. Step out. No matter how mature you are, how long you've been in the Lord, use the gifts that God has given you and then feed it. Feed the Spirit of God inside of you that he might also raise you up like Samuel. And there is no limit to what God can do with your life. As we come to chapters 4 through 6, we find the spiritual climate amongst the people. Now all three of these chapters, 4, 5, and 6, revolve around the Ark of the Covenant. Remember when Moses was given the instructions, he was told to make a gold box, a wooden box overlaid with gold. And in that box would be the law, the Ten Commandments. It would be closed by a big slab of gold that was called the mercy seat. And there were two golden angels that would overshadow that mercy seat and it would be carried only by the priests. And it was never to be opened. It was the most holy article in all of Old Testament worship, the Ark of the Covenant, this gold box. And here's what happens in chapter 4 is that the Philistines, the old enemies of Israel, gather to go to war against the children of Israel. And so they go into battle and the children of Israel find themselves walloped. They lose 4,000 men. And they retreat, they retract, and they complain. And it says in verse 3 of chapter 4, it says that when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. And so they look to the past and they say, well, this is what Joshua did. He had the Ark go out in front of them, and that was their victory. That was their strength. And so they trust in a relic. And they bring the Ark out of the tabernacle, and with a new degree of boldness, trusting in a box... They assemble again and they cry out from the camp and they stir themselves up. The battle hymn of the Republic is playing in the background and they march back into war with the Philistines. Well, the Philistines hear the shout. They consider the cause of what's going on and they also consider the cost of losing the battle. They say, we don't want to be servants of Israel like they're servants to us. And so they they dig in their heels and they say, fight, fight harder than you've ever fought before. And they hand Israel another defeat. This time, 30,000 men are lost. 30,000, including the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, as was prophesied by the prophet and then confirmed by Samuel later. Well, word comes back to Eli, who at this time is 98 years old. He's too fat to get out of a stool, and he's leaning on a pillar in the temple. And when they bring word that the Ark of the Covenant has been captured by the Philistines and his two sons have also died in the battle, it says that Eli fell off of his stool and under his own weight falling on his head, he breaks his neck and he dies at that moment. Word is then brought to the wife of Phinehas who is pregnant and ready to give birth and she finds out her husband, his brother, and their father, Eli, who is the high priest, they're all dead and that the Ark of the Covenant has been taken. And it says that she went stone cold. She gave birth on the spot and she also died, naming with her final breath the child that was born, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed 
because the glory of God had departed uh, from Israel in that day. Well, what's the lesson of chapter 4? Here's the lesson for you and me. Is that yesterday's victories are no guarantee of future success without the Lord. That if you're trusting in something other than your current right now relationship with God to be your victory or your security and things to come, that you have got nothing to stand on. Well, we've got the ark. We've got a relic. We've got a sign. Something that God said that if we send the ark. No, no, no. It's not the ark of God. It's the God of the ark. And if you're trusting in anything else other than God, you have got nothing. Or if you simply think because you are named by his name, I'm a Christian. No. Your strength is in your relationship with him and your dependence on him, never on an it. Yesterday's victory is no uh, guarantee. Now, remember I said earlier in the study that three things are necessary for transition. Number one is that the current status quo or the current order of things must come to an end. That's exactly what happens in chapter 4. Eli is past. His sons are past. Shiloh is now void of the ark. It's been taken by the Philistines. And everything that was in the past is now over. It no longer exists. It's Ichabod. The glory is departed. And then that brings us into chapters 5 and 6, which is then part 2, is that the, the, the people's spiritual attitude must be prepared to accept the coming change. Chapter 5 is a humorous chapter. I like chapter 5. It's the cynical part of me uh, that likes it. Because now the ark of God, the most holy article in Old Testament worship, is in the hand of Israel's enemies. And so there it stands, and the Philistines think they're all hot because they've defeated Israel and kind of tucked their tail a little bit. And so now the Philistines have the ark, and so they take the ark of the covenant, and they put it in the pagan temple of their god, Dagon, the fish god, depicted by the statue of a fish standing upright with hands. Great great god to worship. You know, if you're looking for gods, you might consider a fish that stands on his fins and has hands. You know, that's uh, something that might be able to help you if you have cancer or really have financial needs, you know. But that's what they worshipped in, 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 in the, the, the West or the Gaza Strip there in those days. And so they take the Ark of God and they put it in the Temple of Dagon next to Dagon. Well, they wake up the next morning and they go into the temple and they find that Dagon is knocked over. I'm so tempted to say Dagon it. But I'm not... I'm not gonna, because it's not my joke, you know. I'm not gonna say that, you know. But they, they say, oh, Dagon has fallen. So they pick Dagon up, and, and they go about their business. Well, the next day, they come in again, and this time, Dagon's broken at the base, and his palms are broken off before the God of the Ark of Israel. Great symbol of what idolatry ultimately does. You worship a false god, what you'll find is that that god has no hands, and that it can't help you. It's absolutely powerless. Well, the Philistines realized that they're messing with a power that's too great for them. The Bible says that God smote them with great hemorrhoids. That's what it says. Look, if you read the New King James, it says tumors. It's being politically correct. Get a King James Bible and read it. It's hemorrhoids. And a severe case of venereal disease. That's what it says. And they realize that they're messing with the wrong God here. And so they do what any noble heathen would do. They say, give it to our next door neighbors. <laughs> and so they send the ark from uh, Akron, where it is, and they say, hey, give it to Gath. We don't like them anyways. They owe us money from when Samson was here. So, so they, they send the ark over to Gath, and the same thing happens to the men of Gath. So the men of Gath do what any uh, noble heathen would do, and they say, send it to Ashdod. Keep it moving down the line. But the men of Ashdod have now caught on to what's going on. So the men of Ashdod say, no way. Get it out of here. And the men, they, they come up with a plan. And so they go to the priests. And now we're infringing a little bit onto chapter 6. And they say, how do we get this thing out of here? And so the priest says, look, you're going to have to give an offering um, because you want to appease this God and you don't want his hand. So here's what you do. Make five golden hemorrhoids and five golden rats. Put them in a little, a little chest. Tape it to a cart, get a couple of oxen, put the ark on a cart, and then slap the cows in the, in the backside and just let them run and see if the cows go back to Israel. And if the cows go back to Israel, then we'll know that it was God that did this to us. But if they don't, then we'll, we'll know that this was just some crazy outbreak of hemorrhoids, rats, and venereal disease that came upon us and that it's all just a big coincidence. But the, the telling verse, the thing that really gives it, uh, that gives it its color 
is in chapter 6, verse 5. Notice what it says. He says, therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land. And you shall give glory, listen, give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he did mighty things among them? Did they not let the people go that they might depart? Now, this is interesting. Because here's what this gives us, and it's the lesson of this chapter. Well, there's two lessons in this chapter. The first lesson is this, is that God don't need our help. God does not need us to do anything for him. He's completely capable of doing all things on his own. And the fact that he would use or do anything with any of us is a privilege and a wonder. But the second lesson that's given to us here in this chapter is a profile of the mind of an unbeliever. First of all, deep down, they know... An unbeliever knows that the true and the living God, the God of the Bible, is the true and the living God. The Bible says that the reason they deny it is because of ignorance. Do you realize that the word ignorance has the very word ignore right inside of it? See, ignorance is always willful. If someone is ignorant, it's not because they're uneducated. It's because they don't want to see what's right in front of them. I knew before I came to Christ that the God of the Bible was the true and the living God. I just didn't want to admit it because I was in love with my sin. But if God ever played the tape of my life before I came to Christ before me, I would have no excuse because I used to cry out in my dorm room at night and ask him to leave me alone. I would say, leave me alone. I don't care if the Christians are praying for me. I'm not interested. Get out of my life. But then I would say, I don't believe in God. No, I did believe in God. I didn't want to admit that he was God because I didn't like the implications that it meant for the sinful lifestyle that I was living. I didn't realize or care about the fact that I was in bondage, that I was lost, that I would lay my head on the pillow at night, not know where I came from and cry myself to sleep. But I didn't want to come to him because he was going to infringe on my freedom. Look, I didn't know freedom until I came to Christ. The unbelieving mind knows that God's the real God. Second thing is that the unbelieving mind has no allegiance with anyone but themselves. <laughs> Hemorrhoids, venereal disease, give it to our neighbors. We don't care. Just get it away from us. They don't care about anybody but themselves. Only God can give someone the ability to have true love for someone other than self. And the reason why they don't come is ignorance. Well, uh, the chapter 6 goes on. The ark goes back to Israel. It changes hands a few times, and it ends up in a town called Kirjath-Jerim. And that's where we come to chapter 7, where we find that the attitude of the people has now been prepared. A totally different dynamic in the heart of the people than what was seen back in chapter 4 when the Philistines first fought against them. Notice with me in chapter 7. Look what it says there. We'll read a few verses. It says, Then the men of Kirjath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill, and they consecrated Eliezer his son to keep the ark of the Lord. And so it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there twenty years. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts... Then put away the foreign gods and the ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the ashtoreths and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Do you see the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 4? In chapter 4, the battle hymn of the Republic was playing. They were going to trust in their strength. They were going to rest upon yesterday's victory. But here it says that they're filled with fear. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. 
But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out to Mizpah, of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far uh, as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Do you see the great difference here? They say, would you please pray for us? We're useless. We're lost. We can do nothing against our enemies. We find ourselves in a place of total, absolute dependence upon God. And so Samuel prays for them. He offers an offering. What God does. He doesn't need the ark to go before them in the camp. He just sends a little rumble of thunder. And it confuses the enemies. And it gives Israel enough time to pursue their, uh, you know, um, their victory. And then they set up this Ebenezer stone. So verse 13. So the Philistines were subdued. And they did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. Then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Here's the lesson of chapter 7 in our our closing uh, thought tonight. Is that yesterday's victories are a guarantee of future success in the Lord. See, apart from the Lord, you have no guarantee of success or of blessing or of prosperity or of healing or of anything good happening in your life at all. But in dependence upon the Lord, in a life that's consecrated, that's devoted, that waits upon Him, then your past victories are an assurance of your future successes. That's exactly what the Ebenezer Stone was all about. See, it was something that was set up for them to always look back upon and remember and say, when we trusted in the Lord, it was then that He helped us. And that becomes a testament or an assurance that as He was with us in that circumstance then, so will he be with us in that circumstance now and forever. And that's true in every generation. Is that as you depend upon the Lord, as you wait upon him, as you put your trust completely in him, yesterday's successes for you, it's a testament that God is with you and that he's going to finish what he began. Because the Bible says that God is faithful, that what he began, the work in your life, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. That even when we're faithless, he remains faithful still. Father, we just thank you so much for these seven chapters. Lord, as we consider how you raised up this man Samuel in a most perilous time in Israel. In a generation of people that had grown cold, that had grown religious, that were relating to you simply upon the rites and rituals of the past. You were faithful to meet a new generation with a new outpouring of your spirit. You raised up a man dedicated to you. You called him forth. You taught him to hear your voice. And you used him, Lord, to bring the nation to a place where they would be ripe and ready. And Father, as we sit here tonight, I can't help but think that we're on the cusp of either the next move of God for our generation or perhaps the very judgment of God that we read about coming in Scripture. For truly, Lord, these days are so dark. And it seems as though every day a new lamp is extinguished. A new controversy is exposed as we see the church turning its back on you. It's spiritual leaders taking money from people. We see pastors falling. We see churches abandoning the word of God. We see professing Christians turning to new age ideas. We see the world getting darker and with a testimony of truth growing weaker. But Lord, in the midst of it, our prayer tonight is that you would raise us up as a Samuel. That Lord, you would teach us to dedicate our lives completely to you. That no longer would we trust in just what we call ourselves or where we go to church or the rituals that we do. But Lord, that our faith would stand completely holy in you. 
That, Lord, our sins would be behind us and the cross would be before us. That we would be dead to the world and the world would be dead to us. And that you would have the course, the freedom to do in us what you want to do, O Lord. And so my prayer tonight, Lord, is for every one of us that we would hear the call that you gave to Hannah and then to Samuel. That our lives would no longer be our own. That we would see this world for what it is. That we would interpret things through the lens of your kingdom and not through the lens of culture or education or what we think with our own eyes or mind. And Lord, that you would have full possession of every part of our hearts that we might be completely yours. That we would be sensitive, led of your Holy Spirit. That our ears would be opened and able to hear your voice as you would speak to us. That your word would determine who we are, who we become, and what we believe. And that our lives, Lord, that they wouldn't rest idle and stagnant, but that we would be poured out for your cause, your kingdom, your purpose. And that we would bear eternal and lasting fruit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would come upon every heart and every soul here. That you would pour out your spirit in a fresh and living way. And that you would make yourself known. And Father, we thank you for the great privilege, the great privilege of being called by you. And we thank you, Lord, for your great love for us. Separate us unto you, O Lord, and fill us afresh and anew. We make it our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Take these hands, lift them up, I have not the strength to praise you near enough I have nothing I have nothing without you Take my voice Pour it out Let it sing the songs of mercy I have found Without